So Money, episode 1060, Black Wealth Matters with Tiffany Aliche, the budget nista. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I'm someone who I check all the boxes. So meaning that, you know, they tell you if you just go to school, done it. And I have my master's. You know, if you're successful, I'm here. I have five businesses. So I've checked all the boxes. And yet there are some things that even I can't escape because I'm black. My guest today is one of the top personal finance experts in the world and my friend, Tiffany Aliche, also known as the Budget Nista. She has been on this show before. Excited to have her back to talk about all of the amazing work that she is putting out in the world, but also her own experiences as a black woman building wealth and then teaching others about how to build wealth. Tiffany is an award-winning teacher of financial education. She's one of America's favorite personal finance educators. She has a number one best-selling book, The One Week Budget, and the Live Richer Challenge series, which is super, super popular. I think over a million people have taken this challenge. She has a new book out, a children's book called Molly Moore. Check out mollymore.com. Check out thebudgetnista.com. And stay tuned for this episode where Tiffy and I dive deep into her personal challenges, building wealth, being quote unquote successful as a black individual, as a black woman, some of the challenges that she faced, her separation from FinCon, the community that we all know well, a community of bloggers and writers all in the personal finance space, but for Tiffany and many of her black colleagues, not considered to be a welcoming environment. More on that. And did you know Tiffany was on Queer Eye? I wanted to know all about that. So lots of good stuff in this interview. Here's the budget nista herself, Tiffany Aliche. Tiffany Aliche, the budget nista, my friend. Welcome back to So Money. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Farnoosh? It's been so long. It has been a while. Um, although I follow you on social, so I feel like I'm I'm a little bit caught up. Uh, but I'm just honored to have you back on the show at a time like this, especially this is during our Black Wealth Matters series, and you're doing such important work in the space and making such an impact in so many ways. But firstly, I want to share some good news with you. I am your New Jersey neighbor now. So I feel yes. I feel like I'm in such good company. Welcome to Dirty Jersey. That's what we Dirty call Jersey. Oh my god! <laughs> it's I'll tell you, you know, because moving here in a pandemic and in a quarantine, it's going to be such an interesting experience once things reopen. And like everyone's like, "How do you like it in Jersey?" I'm like, "Well, I like my house. Like I like my driveway. I like the grocery store." Yeah, looking forward to like really feeling that essence soon. Yes. Plus, Jersey is very parky, so there's lots of parks yes. and you'll enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Tiffany, where do we even begin? You know, I I was on your Instagram feed earlier today. So much good stuff on there. Um, Over 300,000 followers. And there was a a quote recently that you posted on there that I would love for you to expand on for us because I think this is like a kind of a good place to start given the times. Um, But you said, I think what a lot of mainstream money gurus are missing is that there's a systemic attempt to make sure people of color don't succeed. So I interpret that as like there is an intentional effort going on or that there is like just a lot of oblivion um, at best. Um, So tell me a little bit about that. And I'm sure this is not something that's new to you, but it is new to a lot of white people. 
<laughs> yes. Yes, I would imagine so. That so I'm someone who I check all the boxes. So meaning that, you know, they tell you if you just go to school, done it. And I have my master's. If you, um, you know, if you're successful, I'm here. I have five businesses, you know, one of which is eight figures, one of which is seven figures. So I've checked all the boxes. And yet there are some things that even I can't escape because I'm black. For example, I, my husband and I bought a house. We purchased it in cash. It was a foreclosure. We renovated it. And I was telling him, you know, like interest rates are super low now, babe, we should pull money out. It's just sitting here and um, we can pull the money out and invest because I know the interest rate that we can qualify for, we can make that back in the market. So we qualified for, for 3.25%. We did a refinance um, cash out. Now here's the part where I was like, Ugh, cause I already know when it's time to get your home appraised that you being black does not work in your favor. I mean, you can do a Google search, do your Googles, and you see that <laughs> black homes are are um are are they what? are appraised yes appraised for up to twenty five percent less than white homes. And I had I already I had a friend of mine that actually was in court as a result of his home being so undervalued doing appraisal. So I always had in the back of my mind, you know what? My white friend, Catherine, she doesn't live far from me. If I ever get my house appraised, Catherine's going to be Tiffany. Isn't that crazy? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But, you know, now they're doing drive-by appraisals. Like, I don't even know how they would even know your race. They just, they like, they... No, they came. It was um, because we just got the appraisal less than a month ago. And I couldn't get Catherine to come because it was during quarantine. And so they came all suited up and there was no way to avoid. I mean, I I turned around because they take pictures and things. So I turned around all of our black pictures, which is so disheartening. But yes. And sure enough, because I had a, a realtor come in before because two homes recently just sold by us that kind of like set the standard. And sure enough, um, from what you don't know for sure, but it was about 10 to $20,000 less than anticipated. And so what do you do? Um, so that's what I mean that sometimes other financial gurus don't understand that there are things in place yeah. that no matter how many boxes I check, no matter how successful I am, that you know, I still have to turn around my black pictures when someone appraiser comes to my house. Even when don't I they was, know who you are? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but even when it came to came to insurance, right? So I was walking through my insurance guy David, and he was like, "That can't be your homeowner's insurance." I'm like, "I'm like, yeah, I can't remember how much it was, but I, I didn't have a point of reference of someone else's homeowner's insurance." And he's like, "We have the same insurance company, New Jersey Manufacturers, and." My house, you know, is about three times more than yours. I think his house is like 1.2 million, something like that. And my insurance is like slightly less than yours, your homeowner's insurance. And I was like, well, that's because I live in a black city. He was like, no, no, no. Tiffany, those numbers are egregious. I called New Jersey manufacturer and they were not budging because we live in a black city. Isn't that insane? Mm -hmm. So if with things like that, how does someone outpace it's almost like racism is inflation, right? Right. So yes. how do you outpace racism? Um, and so that's what I think some financial experts forget to mention when they're telling people, you know, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps right. and stuff that it's easy to say, but not so easy to do. And I think being that a lot of us have these platforms, um, this is an opportunity for us to not just learn, but call this stuff out. And, you know, we tend to refer to this stuff as quote unquote systemic problems, which I've, I've been starting to have a little bit of a 
problem with that term. And I, it wasn't until I watched this video that I really understood why that term just like wasn't, didn't feel like it was like cutting it for me. I, I felt like we were like dancing around the, the real core of the problem, which is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a video, I don't know, you may have watched it. It went viral. Sonia Renee Taylor. She's a black poet, author. Yes. And she was talking about this TikTok, I never watched it, but I have heard of it. It's actually been referred to on this podcast by guests recently about a TikTok, a young girl named Haley having an argument with her parents about Black Lives Matter. And using that as an example, because it was so popular and everybody was like praising Haley for having this real conversation debate with her parents who were resistant to the movement. Um, she's like, why are we, why we keep calling it like a systemic problem? Um, we're not really being introspective about it as a result. What's really happening is it's white supremacy. You know, like it, it is, that is what it is. And so why don't we use that term more often? I don't know. Do you have a problem with just like using these blanket terms? Because I feel like it doesn't really, there's no reaction. You know, it's just like, oh, system, you know, but it's like, Mm, it's it's a lot more uh, concerning because it actually has to do with white people's conscious choices. Yes. And I think people, the reason why people are resistant is that most white people would say, not me, not me. Right. There's no way I'm not, I'm not racist, Tiffany. I don't say the N word, not knowing that racism is not just that it's the neighbors across the street who live here calling the, pol- asking his partner to call the police on my brother-in-law because the bumper of his car was was um, two inches into his driveway. And when he couldn't goad him into a fight, my brother-in-law is really big. He's 6'6", because my, my husband, they're twins. And so I'm watching on the ring as the next door neighbor kicks his car, jumps in front of him, fists up. I don't know if he was drunk or whatever. My brother-in-law refuses to fight him and just comes back in the house. And he yells to his partner, call the police. And I thought that when people say like, well, some people just, they don't realize, oh, he's he's aware call the police. You know, you knew what it would look like five, eight white man calling the police on a six, six black man. But thank God we had the ring tape. So I just sent them to him one at a time and watched as he crumbled. Like, uh, what are you going to do with these? I was just like, you know what? You don't have to worry about speaking to us again. Uh, But know that this is my insurance that I will put you on blast at any moment of time. If there's a peep from you from across the street. And so that's what I mean that like, I think people are afraid to say white supremacy because most white people don't think that they participate in in white supremacy. But you likely do in some small or big form. You don't it doesn't have to be as overt and as egregious. But like, you know, how are you treating the black girl at work? Is she, quote unquote, hard to work with? Tamika has an attitude. Oh, OK. These are words uh, when Katie Couric said, Denzel made me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like those are words set aside for black people. Those are buzzwords. Those are dog whistles. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those people. And so it's those things that allow people to feel very comfortable in their life. So, you know, when people see folks protesting and, you know, they think to themselves like, you know, and and it's so crazy because most of the looters we're finding are actually not um, um, black folks that have been the doing the, um, the violent looting. Um, but when people see that, you know, and instead of saying, oh my gosh, it's such a terrible thing that a life was lost. And instead they're like, it's such a terrible thing that Target's life was lost, that that Target store was lost. I mean, do you like, it's so crazy. I posted, um, a video of Martin Luther King, um, explaining what rioting was. He said that 
a video of him actually saying this, that rioting is the, um, the language of the unheard. And um, I remember, so his son tweeted that as well. And someone, I mean, the gall, sometimes I say it's the audacity of caucasity. Someone tweeted him and said, well, your father, he was never one for, to his son. His son is like, I'm sorry. I think I know my dad. I'm getting um, mansplained about my dad. Okay. Can you imagine? And so I just thought like, that's what, and someone said like, you know, what would Dr. Martin Luther King say? And someone was like, you murdered him. We wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. So I just, <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I, to me, it's like, we are called to be calm. We are called to be, you know, don't shake the table, but that's, that's not fair because it was disruption that caused the life that we're living now. You know, when I see people take down those statues, I'm like, damn right. I mean, if someone came to your home and took your children and sold them, where should we put that statue of them? Hmm? Where would you like that statue? You know, so it's like, I don't understand why sometimes people will pretend like they don't understand until until you're in the park, you know, with your dog unleashed and you know exactly what you're doing. People will tell you that they don't know that about white supremacy or they don't understand racism, but quickly will lean on it when it when it works in, in their favor. And so I think I mean, I don't know what this is going to shake out to be, but I know this, that America only responds to two things. Um, um Violence and, and money. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And so like because of this like anger and, and unrest. So they're listening now. But as far as what's going to maintain changes, it's really going to be money. So I think it's all said and done financially. This, you know, African-Americans, black folks, we have to figure out how we are going to collectively use our money to make the system different. There's a real sense of urgency, right? Because, I mean, you've been doing this work for the better part of a decade, uh, teaching everybody, but I think in particular, Black individuals, Black women, learn how to build wealth. It's always a good time to learn that stuff. But now we're really understanding how powerful we can become when we have the money. It's here. I mean, what is it? I think the buying power of of um, African Americans in, in the United States is what one point four trillion. So the money is here. It's you know what can we do to use that money as a driver uh, toward change? There's so many racial disparities across all financial issues. There's the you know home ownership, unemployment, access to things like you know opening up a savings account. And financial literacy. This is a topic that a lot of my guests recently have said is really, uh, it's lacking for everybody, but in particular, the black community. Um, and this is an area that's very near and dear to you. You've actually done something quite exceptional on that front for the state of New Jersey. So I want you to brag about it a little bit for us. Sure. Toot toot. So yes, I, I work with a friend of mine, Assemblywoman Angela B. McKnight out of Jersey City. Um, when she got elected, first thing she said was, hey, Tiffany, remember I took your class at the United Way? This is when I used to do like all this in-person teaching. And I said, yes. She said, I think that that type of education should be happening for kids in New Jersey. And I said, I absolutely agree that we're fortunate in that New Jersey already has a law in place for high school. But I believe because I used to teach preschool um, for 10 years um, that it should start earlier. And so she and I worked together to craft a bill and to write it. And we met with the education committee. There's a little bit of pushback, but we met with the education committee. What was then the pushback? Has- 
So, and I can understand as a former, like traditional educator, it was at first the way the bill was written, it was written the way you would integrate English or math into a curriculum. And so when I was a teacher, I hated when they brought in a new program because there's no time in the educational day. What am I supposed to do this when they're washing their hands? Because typically when those types of laws are passed, it'll say like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day on a particular subject matter. And so the way we originally wrote the, the the bill, that's what it kind of read like. So then after meeting with um, these other educators, I remembered, you know what, you're absolutely right. There was no other time in the educational day that instead of setting aside a specific um, time frame for financial education, what if we talk about integrating financial education? Mm-hmm. So when you're doing art, maybe you're painting a piggy bank and talking about what that means. That, you know, story time, you integrate stories, financial education stories in, into story time. So integration versus like, stop, it's money time. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And storytelling is great because I think for me, I grew up learning from the modeling and then the stories. It wasn't like my parents were like, okay, time out. Here's what compound interest is. Exactly. So so when we wrote the bill, it, it, it took two years to get to the governor's desk. The first iteration was not signed by the governor at that time. He was on his way out. We would have to go back to the drawing board from the committees to the House to the Senate, finally got to um, Governor Phil Murphy, and he was like, absolutely. It, it, it was bipartisan, both sides of the table, you know, love this bill. And so um, middle school, we made it, the budget needs the law, law A1414. Yes, it makes financial education mandatory for middle school students in New Jersey. So now we're working on elementary school because that was my original intent to get that as well. But um, yeah, we're going to work work to get that on the books as well. So I knew there was a good reason to move to New Jersey. <laughs> yes. By the way, you were recently on Queer Eye. Yes. That's awesome. Tell me about that experience. And I, I watched the clip that you posted. You were helping a, a guy who was worried about not being prepared for financial disasters. Um, Hmm. Yeah. What was your advice for him? So yes, this career producer slipped into the DMs. Um, So yes, Tyreek was someone who he thought that someone had stolen his identity and he was having a hard time opening up uh, bank accounts uh, because he didn't know, understand about check systems and what that meant. And so really my advice was him to one was to get clear on was your identity stolen, freeze your account, um, first and foremost, so that way, if anyone's trying to open up any additional cards or things or or take any more credit out, that would stop. To dig in to see if that's really true, someone stole your identity, because then you probably need to do a police report. Um, three, if you were reported to check systems because said person has you know misused your your identity and maybe overdrafted and had not paid it, then you should look for, there are banks and even some big banks that give you like what they call second chance bank accounts. So they know you've been reported and they still, you know, will allow you to open up a bank account. So to do that as well. And then I actually gave him my literature challenge. You know, I've been doing that for like the last five years um, and it's totally free and um, just a step-by-step guide to help him daily um, achieve his financial goals and so I actually, he and I just spoke a, a few days ago because I said, let's keep in touch every month. We're going to work on a little bit of homework. I don't do one-on-ones anymore, but he was just like, he was just such a sweet guy. And I knew that he needed a lot more handholding beyond just the show. So, Well, if you know how I can get any of those guys on this podcast, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. I'm going to go back and watch the full episode. You were last on this podcast in 2015. So like five years, um, you've done so much. What is next? Well, you know, I actually have to send you. So next is I actually wrote my first children's book. 
because I happy was like, birthday, you know, Mally Moore. Yes. And so I have to send you please for your, for your baby. So yeah, so that what I would really love is to do a series um, uh, for Molly Moore. She's like a little, little character that to teach what I call um, foundational financial education for kids three to seven, because the teacher and me, I was like, okay, at the back of the book, I'm going to do extend the lesson questions and, and um, activities you can do with your kids to extend the age appropriate financial lesson. So it's not heavy on this is a dollar. It's more so donating, giving less versus more. So these are the foundational financial tools that your your little one is going to need. So there's that. Um, I signed my first traditional publishing deal. Nice. Um, I haven't made the official announcement with who yet, but so Ooh, like, I'll wait on You heard that. it but here no. first, everybody. <laughs> yeah. I can't say who yet. Cause I was just like, they were like, wait, Tiffany, but it's going to come out next year. Um, and what I'm excited about is that I have been in my mind swirling about, you know, what, what tangible things can folks do to be financially okay? Like how can you really get good with your money? And so I came up with 10 steps to do so, starting with budgeting, ending with estate planning, but in a real concrete way where you don't feel so overwhelmed. So I'm excited about that. And all these producers have been sliding in my DM. So potentially a show. We shall see. All right. We got our fingers crossed for you. So well-deserved. I remember, do you remember when we first met? We were at FinCon. Yes, we were. We sat next to each other, that fateful dinner. Yes, I was so geek. Oh my gosh. I was. I was like, it's funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now here I am. I'm like, Tiffany. But let's talk about FinCon. Ooh, okay. Like we have about five minutes. So I, I want to, um, just for audience, you may not, you may or may not know what FinCon is. You may know by now, because if you listen to the show, I've talked about it quite a bit. So basically it's an on, it's a community of financial bloggers. It started, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And every, it's a convention every year they go from city to city to city. There's, you know, just like every convention, there's what do you call it? Conference, there's panels, there's workshops, there's keynotes, there's more for me. I've gone a few times and the, like I was inspired to start a podcast from certain conversations I had there. And so I feel like for me, it's, you know, I, I sort of have benefited um, from the learnings there and the community, obviously like met, got to meet you, Tiffany, but so much I had no idea was happening behind the scenes. And also as a person of color, a black person, like a completely different experience for them. And there was a recent, basically a blow up in yes. uh, that started like on Twitter, then went to Facebook. And now the founder is no longer running the show and they're looking for a new CEO. But tell us a little bit about in summary, why you sort of detached yourself from that organization and can it rebuild itself? And would you like to see like something like that come back with more inclusivity? No, absolutely. I think that um, in, in a nutshell, what happened is that the the founder was really tone deaf to um, its women and its people of color, especially black folks, quite honestly. And so um, as a result, there were some tweets that were really insensitive. He since deleted his Twitter account. So you really can't go back and like see because it was I'm, I'm part of a black financial group and we talked about it for years. Like, mm. wow. Um, so we honestly let many of us stop going then. We just never said anything publicly. And so I've been to FinCon, uh, I think two or three times and twice I spoke and twice I got standing ovations. And so this year when I was asked to do a keynote, I was actually kind of excited. Like, even though I, I kind of wasn't really interested in going back because the truth is for me, the benefit for FinCon for me is I got to meet some awesome people. You know, like it was just, you know, it's a a community you don't get to see. 
Yes. Um, so when I was asked to do a keynote, I was kind of on the fence, like, eh. Um, but then I was like, okay, you know what? I'll consider it. You know, I, it's, you know, being on the um, FinCon stage is not a small thing. Um, and so when I got the offer, it was significantly less than other offers that I knew. One particular where the other keynote speaker just a few years ago said how much he was paid on the stage, $50,000. And um, on another, the stage, he said this. Yes. Who? Um, um, uh, Noah Keegan. Huh. Um, he was just like, you know, he's very bro. Wow. And so just because he was giving us money, it was a very bro speech. He was saying, I'm going to sow some of the $50,000 that I got for doing FinCon back into you guys. I think he gave like a bunch of people like $100 or 20 bucks. I can't remember. Um, so I was like, oh, okay. Um, so now my going rate right now is, is 30000 And so in my mind, I was thinking, but I'd already heard, I'd gotten a list from an insider of like what all the guys had been paid. Um, on the low end, twenty. Um, but then upwards of $30,000. And then, like I said, by Noah Keegan's admission, it was 50, at least that's what he said. Um, and so, but I knew that none of them were getting what I was offered, which was $2,500. And I was like, what? So when I saw the offer, I actually froze for a minute. I was like, oh, Tiffany, girl, it's He forgot a zero. I literally thought that not even, I was like, oh, whew, girl, let me call. And I called because I got the email within two minutes. I called. He's like, no, no, it's 2,500. And I was like, wait, what? I actually, I honestly, my feelings were actually hurt. And I was like, why? Because I thought to myself, if I'm not, am I not worthy? Am I not? Then I had to like put on my good big girl panties. It was like, Tiffany, this is bullshit. Like, of course you're freaking worthy. You, you tore the stage down twice when you spoke. The only person to get two standing ovations, the twice that you spoke at FinCon. And I had to, like, I literally sent him a, a breakdown back saying that I have literally spoken at conferences that my breakout session was larger than FinCon's total audience. So this is not new to me. Um, and then two, like that, this is my rate. Cause he offered some things too. He was going to buy my book, happy birthday, Molly Moore for all FinConers, which sounds great in theory until I told him that the book cost me about five or six bucks to print. And he offered to buy the book for $3 and 50 cents. So now I also have to pay to come to FinCon. And then two, I, if you know me, I have, um, big audience called Dreamcatchers. It's about a million of us worldwide. And, and, um, I said, you know, it would be great if some of them could come to FinCon, they can pay. Um, and you know, it'll be great. Maybe I could do a breakout session for free for them. And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. So that's what he considered payment that I'll get your book where you have to pay for it out of pocket. I'll give you 2,500 and I'll give you some of the money that your people give me. And I'm like, what in what society that if I give you money, you give me some back, does that equal payment? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I, I wasn't going to say anything because that happened in February because, you know, it's not atypical. Um, but then when all of this came out, I said, you know what, I think it'll be I'll be doing disservice not to share. Um, so I did. And so it just let all these other egregious things that, that happened come out. And so now here we are. I don't. Honestly, I've, I was already I was already dis, dis, um, distanced myself from FinCon before this, but it was just confirmation. Do I think they can come back? Yes, because one, there's some people who honestly don't care. <laughs> They're like, I don't care. Like in the group, there were people who were like, well, how do we know Tiffany's paid more than this? I want to see receipts. And I'm just like, yeah. So you're always going to get people who don't care that you mistreat other people. So they'll. I honestly think that they'll in the long run be fine, but I will be supporting inclusive um conferences like the Lola Retreat um, by Melanie Lockhart, um, Elevates Conference, Sandy Smith, and other inclusive financial conferences. Um, so yeah, but not not FinCon any longer. Yeah. There's also, uh, since we're shouting out some great ones, there's the Statement Event, which is uh, yes. Stephanie O'Connell, which is more for like 
I don't know. I mean, I've, I tuned in this year when they went virtual and I just love the conversations that they're having. It's unprecedented just in terms of how, you know, words matter, right? Yeah. And a lot of the women who attend are writers, journalists. They're the, they, they're the ones who are distributing the education or the, or the content around money. Just like we talked earlier, like this idea of like using the word systems, like what does that even mean? You know, like, is that really the whole story? Is it really getting to the heart of the matter? Those conversations are that they're having are really important and um, are really moving the needle. So Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on. I knew this was going to be a killer interview. Um, when I started this series in mind, I was like, I I crossed my fingers hoping that you would spare me um, some time to come <laughs> Girl, on the show because I know you're super busy and I'm so in awe of you. I know we don't get to talk that much, but just know that I am so cheering you on. Um, I have goosebumps right now just thinking about all of the things that you have done, the things that you will do, and your energy is so needed. So just keep being you. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's always a privilege and a pre- pleasure. I feel like you really helped to pave the way for like brown people in finance. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm telling you. <laughs> we were like, oh my God. I remember when I got to sit next to you, ooh, you should have seen oh. the mean eyes. They were so mad. I was like, hee hee. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Well, I hope we will be able to sit together again over a meal soon. Um, in the meantime, Tiffany, tell us how we can learn more about the book and the Live Richard Challenge, all the goodies. Sure. So if you want to find the Molly Moore book for your little one, it's M-A-L-I-M-O-R-E, mollymore.com. And if you want to get on the same literature challenge that I gave to Tyreek in Queer Eye, you can go to livericherchallenge.com and choose any of those challenges. There are a bunch of them there. They're totally free and you can sign up right away. Perfect. Tiffany, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Tiffany for joining me. Again, the websites you want to check out, thebudgetnista.com, Molly Moore, that's M-A-L-I-M-O-R-E.com. And just want to say that the founder of FinCon, Philip Taylor, has reached out to me since the airing of this episode with his own take of what happened and denies Tiffany's claims. He says that the average compensation for a keynote speaker historically uh, around $5,700 and the offer to Tiffany was $2,500 for her speaking engagement and they were still negotiating on the book buy. He says he was prepared to pay her the cost of the books so she wouldn't have to lose money on that had they had they accepted a deal but the deal did not work in the end because of COVID and our budget, says Phil. He also says there are no insiders with the lists of what they have paid speakers. He's solely in charge of the books and he has never paid anyone $50,000, let alone thirty dollars or $20,000. 